So we're going to continue this tonight with the same handout we had from last week. So I'm assuming some of you probably have that handout, but also anticipating some of you didn't bring it back. So these gentlemen have the handout beginning where we're going to start tonight, about halfway through. So just raise your hand if you need the handout, and they will give you one. So raise your hand and keep it up until you get one, if you need the handout. All right, while they're handing those out, I will go ahead and start. So welcome back. Um, We'll start by reviewing uh, where we've been. So just kind of give you guys the big picture. We've been looking at various, what we could call, pieces of the interpretation process. Um, Just various parts that go into it. Um, and we've pretty much gotten through all of them with the word studies we finished with, and then tonight we're going to start looking at how to pull all of those together, um, what it looks like to, to give each one the appropriate weight it needs. But first, let's just review what are those pieces of interpretation. Can someone throw out one of them? Context? Context? Yes, like literary context is very important. What's another? Setting. Yep. So setting would be things like who wrote, from where did that person write, in what circumstances did that person write. Um, Also under setting, things like to whom did they write, um, where was that person located when they received that, and what circumstances were they in that um, solicited that letter, that document. Um, Also things like date. Yeah, those would be all things related to setting. Very good would be another one of the pieces we've looked at so far. Genre, right? The kind of literature, whether it's prophetic, whether it's an epistle or a letter, whether it's narrative, parable, would be others. Theme, excellent, yeah, the theme. And I'll just say along those lines... um, Finding the theme is very good, but when you guys are working on that, I would encourage you sometimes to consider going one step further and ask yourself, what's the purpose? So there's a a message, right? And that's usually going to be related to the theme. But then why did the author communicate that theme or that purpose? That's not necessarily seeming relevant yet, but next week when we begin looking at application, And understanding what the reason was, the author's purpose in communicating that, is going to really help us to make sure we're faithfully applying. But yes, theme or purpose, if you just go a little bit further with that. Um, Structure. What's the structure of the book? It's like outline. Outlines are the ways we normally kind of 
process. We think about a structure, and then as a part of that, determining the text we're studying, where does it fit in that structure, right? Let's see if there were any others, because we went a bit out of, out of order here. Determine genre, determine the theme or purpose of the book, determine the structure of the book, and note where the text we're studying is located in that structure. Determine the setting. Oh, seek to understand cultural details, right? That was something we looked at last week, the cultural details. Consider the context, that is the literary context, both near and far, and then do word studies where needed. And then today we're going to move towards putting all that together into a kind of a holistic interpretation. Do we have any questions from last week before we move on? Remember, last week would have been the cultural context and word studies. All right. So the plan for today is to finish the handout, and then uh, we'll go ahead and work through the homework together. Uh, I think that'll be helpful uh, just to work this whole process through. We're seeing how all the pieces come together, and now let's, we'll, we'll do that together. So go ahead and take a look at your handout, and at the bottom there are page numbers, and I'm saying that just because those of you who got a handout today got only half of it, so it's going to start for you on the first page. For those of you who have your handout from last week, it'll be a little bit further back. So per the page number on the bottom of the page, we're going to start on page number five. Page number five. Sorry, with this computer up here, I don't have much room to spread things out. All right. So first of all, that process, um, we, we start with, as it's going to explain here, a tentative interpretation. Then we're going to consult commentaries, and then I think this will be okay, Nate. I'll pull it back over here in just a moment. I think it's fine for now, yeah. Thank you, though. I appreciate you trying to find a solution there. So what it's explaining here is that that first paragraph we already talked about, those seven steps or eight steps, um, and then going into that second paragraph, essentially it's trying to help us understand what relationship should be there between our own study and commentaries or other, other explanations of the meaning of the passage. What, what, what role should those play? And what it's explaining to us is that you should start by doing your own work. Do your own work. Then, once you've kind of done all of it, you've got an interpretation, then go and consult some commentaries. And then on, in light of that, what you find there, go back and consider, do I need to revise my interpretation at all? And the reason for that is that there are some benefits of consulting other people's work, like commentaries, and there are some drawbacks. One of the drawbacks is that you kind of get some ideas already in your mind and you can't really read the text afresh. When you already have a certain interpretation, it's easy just to keep reading it that way. So that's one of the benefits of not reading a commentary initially. The commentator isn't authoritative. The text and what the Lord has revealed there is authoritative, so the whole point is to get back to that. On the other hand, it's a little naive to think that just because we haven't read commentaries, that we're coming to the text like a blank slate without any, any um, tendency to go in a particular direction. We already are bringing certain pre-understandings to the text. By that, I mean certain ways of reading certain things. It could be cultural background. I mentioned last week a crown, right? We hear crown, and we tend to think kingship. 
some kind of royalty. So we're already bringing these things, and often we're not even aware that we're bringing those assumptions to the text. And that's why it's not necessarily a better option for us not to consult anyone else because we just remain blind and unaware of all the things we're assuming that may be wrong. And so this process uh, that this um, handout here lays out is really a good one where we can get the benefit initially of approaching the text on our own, having to work through this process, but yet also get the benefits of others' insights. And yet we aren't leaning totally on them because we've already forced ourselves to do our own work. And then next, moving down into that section there, A, how to interpret. We need to be asking, what was the author trying to say in this text? I might just note, I'd probably take trying out there. I give the author the benefit of the doubt that they've successfully said what what they intend. Um, But yes, what, what did the author say in this text? And note he says there, don't ask yourself, what does it mean to me? That's more application. What, what must I do in light of what God has said? But what God has said is the same for everyone. So that's why we're asking, what has the author said in this text? And then um, he goes on and comments on that a bit more there by noticing that it may be a better way to say it would be, what did God intend the biblical author to mean by what he wrote? Or um, what did God and the biblical writer intend for their audience to understand? And that's helpful because the biblical writers wrote under inspiration from God. So obviously there's sort of two authors here. Does that make sense? God's inspiring the biblical writer. And yet at another level, this might sound complicated, and I think we can really simplify it. The doctrine of inspiration says that whatever God intended to be communicated through that text, he he inspired the biblical writer to author. So, really, they're one in the same intention, one in the same meaning. It's not as though they have different meanings. You've got to consider each separately. So, it's often much easier just to consider, what did the human author mean? What did the human author say? What did he mean by what he said? And whatever that is, is also what God intended. Does that make sense? That just simplifies it a bit. Sometimes if you keep thinking, I've got to determine both of these sides, it can, be a bit more, it can be a bit confusing. But God didn't intend in that text anything he didn't inspire the author to write there. That wasn't in the author's intention in writing. It's not a part of the, the scripture as we have it, what's written. Our document here goes on and just says that we should write down and make a mental note of all the possible interpretations if you see several options. That will help you because sometimes you start saying, I'm not really sure exactly what is the best interpretation here. And and just simply documenting the options helps bring order to your own thinking. Otherwise, we're just kind of in a fog, right? I just don't know what the text means, and we get discouraged. But if you can work toward bringing order in terms of writing down, it could mean these three things, and then go ahead and list as well what would be the pros and cons for each Now you're beginning to bring order to the process of working toward a resolution to some of that interpretive confusion. And we're actually going to get to more of that on the next page. So flip over there to page six. And then at the very top, number two, make sure your interpretation agrees with the theme and near and far context of the book. And here I just want to emphasize what I've said last week and Pastor Farrell has emphasized There are lots of things we've considered, word studies, literary context, um, cultural backgrounds, 
But overwhelmingly, that literary context is the most important. That's what's going to drive how we use all the others. So, again, that's just kind of what point number two is reminding us of, the priority of that literary context and making sure our interpretation agrees with that. And then number three, um, if the interpretation seems obvious to you, then you're ready to consult uh, commentaries. And then number four, after consulting commentaries, you may want to modify your interpretation as commentators may reveal things in the text you didn't notice. That's what we talked about earlier. Or may tell you things from the original languages that you couldn't see in the English text. Now, notice what he says next. If you are convinced there is a better interpretation for your text and or that you need to modify your interpretation a bit, then do it. What I'm, the reason I'm drawing attention there isn't to try to encourage you to have some sort of just condescending perspective on whatever commentator um, you're reading, but is because it's sometimes easy to read a commentator and just say, well, they know so much more, surely they must be right, and just kind of capitulate to whatever they said. But you really should think through, well, what are their reasons? And why did I not land there? And kind of work back through that process. Okay, they're saying this word actually means this, and I was reading it this way. Now let me go back and consider how that ought to affect my interpretation. Because that's, it's easy to capitulate to one commentator's interpretation when you're only reading one commentator. But if you read three commentators, you'll probably find some slightly different interpretations, and you'll realize it's not so easy just to capitulate. Um, you've got to figure out what is, what is actually the data they're bringing to the table that should be changing your interpretation. Does that make sense? All right, next, if we're going to be going to commentaries and seeing what they say after we've done our work and then considering what what they're bringing to the table and how that needs to change our interpretation, then we've got to ask what kind of commentaries to use. And so our document here gives us three different kinds of commentaries. First would be critical commentaries. Second, expositional or exegetical commentaries. And then the third there would be devotional commentaries. So critical commentaries are generally going to be very technical. They're usually going to deal with the, the, the text in Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic, whatever the original language is. When they begin dealing with backgrounds, they're often going to assume you know a whole lot about that world. Um, they're going to talk about things like variants in, in the text, which reading was original, the manuscripts and all of that. So this is, these ones can get fairly technical. And not only that... But often you're going to find that people writing these commentaries will be, not, not often, but not always, but often they will be more liberal. Um, and so that means that there's a certain level of discernment needed on your part. And if you don't really understand what are the philosophical underpinnings that are driving their approach to the scriptures, it can be kind of confusing. You're not sure why are they getting here? Why are they drawing those conclusions And so there is a little bit of a difficulty in using critical commentaries um, for most of us, unless we have some kind of special training to be able to benefit from what they're saying. But the second kind is really the kind that's going to be most useful to you, those expositional exegetical commentaries. You might ask, what's the difference between those? Exegetical are primarily focused on just explaining what the text means. Expositional will often be Sometimes just a manuscript, basically, of a preacher's sermon. So some of you guys might have used, like, John MacArthur's commentaries. Those are basically just from his sermons that he's preached, and they've 
They've reworked them a bit, but they've essentially just tried to make them into a book format. The point is, they're expositional because they're trying to make the text simple for believers and even explain how they should be applied to some extent. Exegetical ones won't normally do that. James Montgomery Boyce would be other ones that are in that um, expositional category where they're basically sermons. So those are very useful ones. And then finally, devotional commentaries. These would be the least technical. They usually won't take much time at all to explain why, like what the text means and how they got there. They sort of assume that and just begin talking about how it needs to be applied. I would say that for any of you sitting in here, the devotional commentary can play a supplementary role, but because the author won't be too clear about exactly what the text means, and certainly won't generally be defending what it means, it does leave you somewhat without a firm basis for those applications. So you almost need something else so you can first say, I know what this text means, because that's a necessary foundation for faithfully applying it, right? If we don't know what the text means and we begin trying to apply it, what are we applying? It seems to be whatever, whatever I think the text might mean, whatever I think it should mean, well, that becomes dangerous because now we don't have the authority of God behind it. So it's not to say devotional commentaries can't be helpful, but they should probably play more of a supplementary role after you've already determined what the text means. So continue on now to page 7. Here he just gives you some tips about which commentaries to get. First, he says there are number one. Basically, don't ever just, to put it in modern day terms, you can see this talks about bookstores. Um, There are still a few bookstores out there, but not too many bookstores. Um, So in today's terms, it's probably not helpful just to go onto Amazon and look up commentary on Gospel of John and pick one. Pick one that has good reviews. That's probably not the best way to go about it. And you have plenty of people here at Timberlake who would be happy to help point you to to a helpful commentary on any particular book. So uh, feel free to ask us, and I genuinely mean that. I think I mentioned last time um, the New American Commentary that's put out by Broadman and Holman, um, the Baptist publisher, and they've got individual commentaries. Most books have their own volume, so they're pretty short, pretty basic, but somewhat detailed. That's why I'm giving that to you, because there are plenty of one-volume commentaries. I just tend to find those to be so brief in their treatment. It's basically like your study Bible, which is good, but if you want something more, then the New American Commentary um, series can be useful. And I mentioned another one last time. Do you remember what the other series was I mentioned last week? What was it? Yeah, Expositor's Bible Commentary. That's right, Expositor's Bible Commentary. And that one, again, is a multi-volume. It's going to be much shorter than New American because the New American Commentary has basically a separate volume on each book of the Bible. So you can imagine on your shelf it would be pretty long, but you could buy one at a time. The Expositor's Bible Commentary is total probably 12 volumes, um, but covers the whole Bible in that span. Um, Number two there comments on if you can only get one commentary, what kind should you get? And he recommends getting a good exegetical commentary. Notice about halfway down in that paragraph, after you learn to study and make application, devotional commentaries become less and less helpful. I would agree, and I think that somewhat applies even to uh, what David Miller had had commented on um, last week about the Puritans. Remember he asked about Puritans, and I had commented that uh, Puritans are helpful. They were, most of them were very good students of the word. They were well trained. A lot of them did a lot of schooling, could handle Greek and Hebrew well. Um, But in their own writings, they often don't give much time to explaining what it means. They spend a lot of time thinking about how do we apply this. And rarely do Puritans apply scripture in superficial ways. 
Um, they get down into the, the nitty-gritty of your heart and what's going on and why your heart responds the way it responds, and that is gold. That is helpful. We need that. So use that in that kind of devotional category to help you think deeply about the text after you've determined what it means. Um, but yeah, I would still find those helpful at that level. And then number three there says, find out where to get good deals on books from pastors. Never pay list price. Obviously, these days, you pretty much buy everything on, online. If you want to find somewhere besides Amazon, I would say Christian book distributor. Christian book distributor often has good prices, sometimes better than Amazon's. Christian book distributor. All right, so with that, the rest of our handout goes through an example from Jeremiah 17.9. You are welcome to work through that, but I want to go now to the homework, and let's spend the rest of our time just working through the homework with the passage they've given us, 2 Timothy 2.3. All right. So putting the steps together with 2 Timothy 2.3. So the first question we're going to ask is, what kind of literature or genre is the book of 2 Timothy? And it would be an epistle or a letter, right? I'll let you guys answer some of these, but that that was a pretty easy one. Second, what is the historical setting of 2 Timothy? Remember, this deals with things like the circumstances surrounding the writing. Who, when, to whom, to where, from where, those types of things. So let's start with um, who. Who wrote Second Timothy? Paul. Here's a harder question. From where did he write Second Timothy? Yeah, from prison in what city? Rome. Yep. So f- Paul from prison in Rome. Next, when did he write it? This is something you'd have to look up in a study Bible. He wrote it in the mid-60s. And it seems quite certain that Paul died probably in the latter part of the 60s. Um, And so this would be very near to the end of his death, maybe mid to latter part of 60s. So the point of the significance of that is that it's quite possibly the last book he ever wrote and very near to the end of his life. And then to whom and where? To Timothy at the church in Ephesus. To Timothy at the church in Ephesus. So moving on from the historical setting to the theme, what is the theme of 2 Timothy? I don't think we have any easy answer to that. It's not as easy as Paul, is it? But for someone who's been working on some of the homework, we've used 2 Timothy previously. I know this is homework you probably hadn't gotten to yet because we haven't finished this lesson yet. But some of you might have thought about this. So if you've thought about it, go ahead and shout it out. What do you think is the theme of 2 Timothy? Say that again. Staying faithful in the Christian walk. Yeah, that's excellent. Good, Holly. I wrote various final instructions or charges for Timothy. Various final instructions or charges for Timothy. And then I mentioned earlier that sometimes it's helpful to go just a bit further and not only ask what the theme is, but also ask what the purpose is. So here was my attempt to articulate a purpose for the book of 2 Timothy. To bolster Timothy's courage to give him instructions for himself and for shepherding the church and to request that he travel to Paul. Now, 
I'll say that ordinarily I would encourage you to try to get one simple purpose because usually an author is pretty pointed in what he's trying to accomplish. There might be multiple ancillary things or kind of um, you know, lower level uh, subordinate things he's trying to accomplish, but one overarching one. A letter is a bit different. A letter, sometimes you can have multiple things you're just trying to knock out. You're trying to explain. You're trying to say. So requesting, for example, at the end of the letter, he traveled to him. That's important. That's not something you would want to miss, and yet it's not going to be the overall theme. So I'm just saying that when it comes to identifying the purpose, often aim to, to try to find something that will encompass all of it. And yet I would say that for letters, that's maybe not a natural expectation for that genre. It's more natural to expect that maybe he's trying to accomplish several things. So just to read that again, what I, what I attempted, and again, I just did this after, I've never preached the book of Second Timothy, but just sat down and read it again and tried to write this. And I wrote, to bolster Timothy's courage, to give him instructions for himself and for shepherding the church, and to request that he travel to Paul. So what is the theme? Oh yeah, there's the, I should put that up earlier for you. The purpose. And next, what are the major outline points of 2 Timothy? What are the major outline points of 2 Timothy? This could be confusing for me to ask you and you try to give me feedback. So let me just go through and show you what, I, um, what I'm using for the outline. And if you've worked on this and come up with something different, don't be alarmed. Um, when it comes to tracing the flow of a letter like this, sometimes we'll break it down a bit differently. Um, but we can always glean from seeing another person's outline and just determine, is, is there a better way to understand it? So first in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1, we see the opening. And then secondly, in verses 6 through 18, that's the rest of chapter 1, we see an appeal for courage. Third, in all of chapter 2, verses 1 through 26, we find various instructions for Timothy. Fourth, in chapter 3, we find the difficulty of the last days in Timothy's response. The difficulty of the last days in Timothy's response. In chapter, oh, sorry, part 5, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, we find a final charge. And then part 6, in chapter 4, verses 6 to 8, a faithful finish. And then finally, chapter 4, verses 9 through 22, a closing. So you can see there, basically, I'm just going through and trying to see where do I see breaks in what Paul's trying to accomplish here. And generally, there could be you know, grammatical clues where you see some sort of significant conjunction, but often you're going to be looking at a change in theme. Something's changing. Paul sometimes reaches a point where he says, finally. He's not always close to being done yet. Sometimes he still has a little bit further to go, but at least you know he's sort of in his mind transitioning to another part. And one of the difficulties with outlining and finding the structure is that there's usually a certain coherence that holds the whole together. So you're always finding yourself in this balance of there's a little bit of a development, and yet there's also some measure of continuity and coherence with what precedes, and that's always there. So then is it a big enough break to say we're moving on to something else or not? And those are just good things to wrestle with. Basically, the outline is just forcing you to ask how this is developing. So that is answering number four of our homework. What are the major outline points of 2 Timothy? Do you guys have any questions about that? I don't want to just rush through this because the goal isn't to get the homework done. The goal is for us to work through this together and maybe you guys to see what this process looks like. 
you have any questions or want to just feedback or thoughts so far? We aren't done yet, but... All right. Question number five. What part of the general outline does 2 Timothy 2.3 fit into? And so you can see from the outline we have there, since it's 2.3, it fits within that section of chapter 2, verses 1 through 26, which is instructions for Timothy. So we see that our verse that we're looking at here is instructions for Timothy. Let's do something that I should have done initially. It'd be very obvious. Let's turn there and read what 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 says. <laughs> So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn there. I'll read it out loud for us, but it'll be helpful for you to have your Bible open. Sorry, I should have asked you to do that earlier. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 says, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Makes sense that it fits right into the section on instructions for Timothy. And the next, the next question tells us to look at the theme and look at a detailed outline of the book and asks what are some of the sub-themes in the far context leading up to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. So uh, you should have your Bible open there and still, so you can look at what precedes it, but I'll help us here. Just kind of reviewing some themes, things here. It asked us about the theme, so I had said the theme is various final instructions or charges for Timothy. And then with regard to a detailed outline of the far context leading up to our verse, we have again, opening, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and then it says for a detailed outline, so I've broken it down a bit more. In verses 1 and 2, we find a salutation, and then in verses 3 through 5, we find Paul's thanksgiving for Timothy, and then... In the rest of chapter 1, we find the appeal for courage, which could be broken down into the first half, verses 6 through 12. Appeal to stand unashamed and be ready to suffer. So I've underlined that part because that could be one of those significant sub-themes that's leading in the context leading up to where we are. So standing unashamed and being ready to suffer. And then the second half of chapter 1, an appeal to guard the truth that's been entrusted to him. And again, I underlined it because this could be another piece that has themes that are going to resurface in the beginning of chapter 2. And then next, in chapter 2, we come to instructions for Timothy, which could be broken down into the first half, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, which are instructions for Timothy directly to, to him himself. Remember, Timothy here is functioning as a pastor, or we could call him a church planter. He's currently shepherding the church in Ephesus. And so Paul's writing to him both with instructions for him, but a lot of it has its goal with how he shepherds the church. And so that's where the second half of chapter 2 goes, instructions for shepherding the congregation. I'll stop there because now we've gotten beyond our, our passage in verse 3, but at least gives you an idea of how chapter 2 breaks down. So where we find ourselves here with regard to a detailed outline would be instructions for Timothy directly. And then just note again those themes that lead up to it the standing unashamed and being ready to suffer, and guarding the truth entrusted. Next, number seven. What is the near preceding context before 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 talking about? 
Um, So we notice some things here. In chapter 2, verse 1, we see, uh, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 2, he gives a second command. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And then we come to verse 3. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So let me just try to make some connections here for you. When 2.1 instructs Timothy to be strong, um, it does that, and it notes that he will have this strength because of the grace of Christ. Now, it seems the logic that's going on here is that if Timothy is going to be able to do what was commanded to him in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1, so look back in your Bibles to chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, which say, Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard, through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the treasure which was entrusted to you. So in both cases, there's this truth that's been given to him, and he's to be retaining that, guarding it. So it seems like where Paul's going next, he's picking up from that. Um, in chapter 2, and saying that Paul, Tim, sorry, Timothy is going to need to be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus to be able to do that, And that's particularly made clear in light of the men who have defected from doing this. So look at chapter chapter 1, verse 15. So right after our two verses we just read, 13 and 14, we come to 15, where he says, You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. But then he goes on and kind of gives a positive example. In verse 16, The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, For he has often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered. So after explaining there, some people have defected and haven't done this. But then here's someone else who's done a good job. Now he returns to kind of what you're going to need, Timothy, to be able to do that. And then chapter 2, verse 2. So we've been looking at verse 1 of chapter 2. Now the second um, verse seems to make a bit clearer what exactly he needs to do as he's strong. In what way does he need to be strong? He's making it concrete, that command to be strong, by applying it in a specific way, which is also picking up 13 and 14 of chapter 1. Here he needs to entrust the things he's been taught from Paul to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So guard it, keep it, but don't just hold on to it. Actually... Pass that on. Keep it going. doesn't do you much good just to keep it, keep it yourself. You've got to pass it on to other people. So specifically, be strong by not just holding on to it yourself, but making sure you're teaching this to other people. So th- that's just my attempt, and I'm kind of doing this out loud for you to help you see how I would think through these questions and doing this homework. So the question asks, what is the near preceding context before 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 talking about? And those are just the types of things in the context I'm noticing. Then question number eight. What is the near following context after 2 Timothy 2, 3 talking about? Well, verses 4 through 6 seem to expound the command of 2, 3 with three examples. So look at that. Chapter 2, verse 3. I'll start with 3 again. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And then here are our Um, Three examples that expound that command. Number four, verse four, 
No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Now the second example. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. And then our third example, verse 6, the hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. So there we see three basic examples that are expounding the command in 2-3. Um, essentially, just to kind of summarize what's going on there, Timothy's reminded of the link between a soldier's single-mindedness in verse 4. You know, he doesn't embroil himself in the, the affairs of everyday life. There's a connection between that and the soldier's endurance of hardship in verse 3, apparently. If he's going to endure hardship, he's going to have to be focused, single-minded in what he does, according to that connection. Then, verse 5, bringing in the athlete um, example, the point here seems to be that the athlete has to follow a grueling path to win. He doesn't win if he cuts corners. Whether this has in view the general principles of training for an event, such as careful diet and hard training, or whether those rules are the rules that need to be followed for the actual event. You know, you, you can't cut corners here. You've got to make sure you do this or do that. You can't touch that. Whatever those ex- rules might be. Um, however he might try to cut corners, these would be things that would, would keep him from winning. Just kind of as an interesting note, one of the steps that we had seen was cultural background, right? Cultural context. And one of the interesting features here is that for some of the major games in this area of the world... Uh, that they would participate in, it was required that anyone who participates um, train for the preceding 10 months. Had to be actively training for the preceding 10 months. So that just gives you an example that there were some kind of rules. So if we're trying to figure out what does he mean, the rules for training leading up to the event or the actual rules that govern the event itself could still be either. But knowing that there were actual rules related to how he must train could suggest that that's what he must do. If he doesn't train for 10 months, then he's not going to be able to win the prize. Could be what's in view here. And then verse 6, um, that was the hardworking farmer as our third example, helping us to understand what it looks like to suffer hardship with Paul as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And this one seems to be an example for encouragement. The farmer who works hard and endures the strains of being a high-productivity farmer does pay a price but he's amply rewarded at the time of the harvest. Does that make sense? Likewise, Timothy should be encouraged to stand strong in the midst of suffering and by the promised reward ahead. So you can see how what follows is all helping to develop this verse. We're talking about literary context here, and we're seeing how the literary context contributes to us understanding verse 3. And also... Um, this understanding of what, what's in view here of with the hardworking farmer, that it's holding out to him and encouraging him by the, the reward that's in front of both the farmer and also in front of Timothy, we sort of see this supported, I think, by seeing the same theme in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, where Paul says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So we see that in this letter, Paul is interested in encouraging Timothy to stay the course and be faithful by pointing his attention to the reward that lies ahead. So the fact he does that in chapter 4 suggests that he might be doing the same thing here 
I think that seems pretty clear anyway, though. I'm just showing you how we can use literary context to help to confirm what seems to be the point. All right. Moving on to number nine, question number nine in our homework. What cultural information helps you understand the hardships of being a soldier in 2 Timothy 2.3? Well, um, we could obviously go to Bible dictionaries and encyclopedias. Um, and I gave you guys some last time. I think I mentioned like the New Ungers, um, the Holman Illustrated, uh, the, that one online, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, the first edition that's available online. And then there's a newer edition which isn't available online. It's not in the public domain, but it's very good. So that's one place you can look. I happened to look there and uh, found a lot of info about how Roman armies are organized, but didn't find too much about the hardships they endure. Sometimes that's what happens when you try to look these things up. It's not always a, a slam dunk. Another place you can look are the longer works on the life of a Roman soldier. So in looking up actually that International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, there's a bibliography at the end. I didn't find what I wanted, but I found some resources that I could go to look to. And so one was this book by G.R. Watson, The Roman Soldier. Now I understand most people don't have time to go read a whole book on The Roman Soldier to understand the background here, right? I didn't either. Um, but it's at least a place we could go to look if we really want to know a bit more about this. And actually, um, in that book, here's what Watson, uh, one thing Watson says that I thought was helpful, just uh, here's, at this point, I'm simply looking at the beginning of the book to see if it's going to help me understand something about what the life of a Roman soldier was like. And here's what he says in the introduction, page 11. The aim and purpose of the present study, this is G.R. Watson's book, The Roman Soldier, is to reconstruct the life in training of the Roman soldier from enlistment to discharge. That sounds helpful. If I want to know what the life of a Roman soldier was like, that book could be helpful if I had time this week to read it. Um, a second book would be uh, Gary Burgess' A Week in the Life of a Roman Centurion. That sounds pretty interesting, doesn't it? It could likely help us. Um, but those types of things, like I mentioned, do take a long time. So another helpful way to do this is to read these backgrounds commentaries. Commentaries that are specifically going to take books like these two I just mentioned here and distill this information. There are people who are experts in that world, that ancient world, and they're going to try to distill the most relevant information for this verse. And so, um, for example, one of these is Craig Keener's The IVP Bible Background Commentary on the New Testament. And here's what he says on page 626. Soldiers were not even allowed to marry during their term of service and were to be strictly devoted to their service for over 20 years. Only about half survived to retire. Soldiers were not even allowed to marry. So one of the things I'm noticing here is what Paul says. Uh, verse 4, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. Right? It seems like that's, that's exactly what we know from the background, too. They weren't even allowed to marry. They had to stick with it until they were done, and not many of them even made it. So um, just to kind of give you an idea of what it would look like to have one of these resources on your shelf, it's a one-volume book that covers the whole New Testament, and the, the portion that covers this verse was probably about half of a column. There's two columns on a page. So we're talking about, you know, a minute to two minutes to read. But nonetheless, some helpful, insightful info. 
Another resource you might look at, this one's a bit longer, but I'm just giving you an idea of the kinds of resources that are out there, is this five-volume work called the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Backgrounds Commentary on the New Testament. Um, Before we move on to question number 10, one thing to keep in mind is when you start pursuing relevant cultural backgrounds, it's sometimes easy... This is a lesson learned the hard way. It's sometimes easy to lose track of what your original purpose was. You can get caught up in reading this and reading that and reading this and reading that. And if you're someone who's particularly curious, you can find yourself, this is really interesting. And you start chasing these other things. And uh, it may have some relevance, but it's just not helping you really understand exactly what the author meant. And another danger is that we begin importing backgrounds that aren't what the author is appealing to. And we begin just trying to basically take some, practically a metaphor, a simile here that the author's using, and begin to make it walk on all fours. We're, we're kind of making all these connections the author himself isn't making, and it might be helpful to illustrate Christian truths, but it doesn't have the authority of Scripture behind it, because that's not what the author's doing. So, just a reminder, learn the hard way. And then you realize, wow, I've still got more work to do, and I've lost a couple hours. Number 10. What do word studies of the words below reveal? And he gives us three words. First, suffer. Um, I'm just looking at the time here. We are almost done, and we won't go spend quite so much time. I just want to take a few minutes here, though, to look at suffer and kind of work through a word study with you. Last week we didn't I didn't spend too much time actually working through that process. So let's do that now. Taking suffer, the first step would be to find the strong's number, which if you look it up in a concordance is G4777 and then to use that number to find the correct Greek or Hebrew word in a dictionary such as finds. And if you uh, oh here I noted you may find blueletterbible.com to be helpful for this. I'm actually going to Put it up on the screen and show you how to do this. I mentioned to you last week the, the humbling realization that I have never actually worked through this process um, because early on I actually started taking Greek when I was 18, first entered college, and so I've just always gone directly to the major resources. I've never worked through this. So I sat down this week with Pastor Brody, and he helped me. Here's how it works, and he gave me all these insights. Blue Letter Bible, he said, is super helpful, and I used it, and indeed it is. So you guys might all be just like Pastor Brody and saying, yeah, we're, we're well aware of this, um, but nonetheless... Uh, I'll I'll walk through those steps with you. And here's how to do it, but let's just go ahead and do it. All right, is that up there? No, it's not. Sorry, I know what to do, Nate. I think I know what to do. I should have waited until I'd done it before I say that. Whoops, maybe I don't know. Ah, I see. Hmm. Yep, see, I spoke too soon. Sorry, folks. All right, so here we are at blueletterbible.org. So we just come up here to where it says search the Bible. 
You can see I've already tried this. Right, 2 Timothy 2.3. And then drop down here and choose the translation. I'm just going to use the NASB 95, 1995 edition. And here we find the verse, broken down each of the verses. Here's verse 3. And this tools function over here. Just click on this. And here we can see, let me see if you guys are seeing what I'm seeing. You can see the Greek text up here. And then it takes each of these Greek words and lays them out vertically like this and tells you right over here in this middle column what that Strong's number is. So fewer need, needs to, less time needing to be spent flipping back and forth in books. But not only does it show you that here, we said ordinarily you'd go to a concordance, find the Strong's number, then with that Strong's number, you would be going to another resource like Vines to look up the meaning. But here you can simply click on that Strong's number and it's going to take you here, and it's going to show you info on that word. So you can even see how to pronounce the word. Um, we can see over here that it occurs uh, two times. And then we can see the entry right here for Vine's Expository Dictionary. But before we go there, just keep looking on down. We see this information about the King James translation count, um, and it translates it, Be a Partaker of Affliction. This outline of biblical usage, remember we talked about like a semantic range, a range of meanings? Well, this word only occurs twice, and so it doesn't have a wide range. But this would show you multiple meanings, basically constructing that range of meanings that's so helpful in a word study. It's going to show you what's, what's here. So the, the one meaning they give is to suffer hardship together with one. That is like together with someone. And then it gives us a definition from Strong's, to suffer hardship in company with or be a partaker of afflictions. And then it also gives us this other uh, Greek lexicon, Thayer's. And it tells us here, uh, where's the actual definition? Right here in bold, to suffer hardship together with one. So it gives you a lot of info right there, all on one page. And then if you click here on view entry for vines, it just pops up right here. To suffer hardship with is so rendered in 2 Timothy 1.8, according to the Revised Version and the um, American Version, or the Authorized Version, be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel, and in the best manuscripts, it also occurs in 2 Timothy 2.3, suffer hardship with me. All they're noting there is that the King James uses a small group of manuscripts that um, before a lot more were found, and in, in the, those manuscripts... It's a slightly different word there. It doesn't include like a prefix on it. Basically means the same thing, slightly different, so therefore the same word doesn't occur. That, that word that occurs here in the manuscripts we're looking at doesn't occur in the ones that King James is using. So this word, according to the King James, will only occur once in 2 Timothy 1.8, but according to the best manuscripts, it occurs also here. But really the difference between those two words is quite small. So essentially it means the same thing. So there's an area where the difference of the manuscripts has no material difference in the meaning. All right, so that's pretty easy, huh? Raise your hand if you've already been doing this or have done this before. Go ahead and humble me. Okay, wow. Yeah, some of you have, though. Good. Well, I'm glad that we worked through this. If you guys all raised your hand, I'd be thinking, I'm just making myself look like a fool up here, showing you what to do, you, what, what you already know how to do. But Good. I hope that was helpful, just helping you guys think through what it might look like to study some words. And then let's pick up here with where we left off.
and we are almost done. So continuing on now with hardship, I probably should have showed you this um, while it was up there. I'm not sure why the person who put this together, this is a, a resource, this handout that PF is borrowing from another gentleman, Jack Hughes, who put this together. But you could have seen in, in the Blue Letter Bible that actually suffer and hardship are two words in English that are all attempting to render one Greek word. So I'm not sure why he broke it up as though they're two different things. So there's no, nothing really to be studied there for hardship. And then soldier, you could do the very same thing with that at Blue Letter Bible. And I did that one, and there's nothing particularly insightful to come from studying soldier, just like there really wasn't anything particularly insightful from suffer hardship, right? What it says is basically what the translation says. And so that should hearten you. Uh, there's not this whole world of meaning behind your English Bible that you're missing out on. Uh, your English Bibles do a great job of rendering for you what, what the original author said, in this case, what Paul said. And so, like I mentioned last time, if you just keep reading your English Bible again and again, know it inside and out, you will know what God has communicated very clearly. Sometimes it is helpful to do a word study. Um, so certainly, by all means, use it. But don't be surprised if often what you discover there is just exactly what the translation seems to say. And don't be discouraged by that. Be encouraged. Number 11, what is your interpretation of 2 Timothy 2.3 before consulting commentaries? So here's our attempt to kind of just synthesize everything we've looked at and give a simple interpretation. And here is what I wrote. Paul is instructing Timothy to be steady in the work, even though it will entail suffering. And he provides him an analogy for doing this, a soldier who has a single-minded devotion to his responsibility. Hopefully, having worked through all of that, you can see exactly where all that comes from in the context. Paul is instructing Timothy to be steady in the work, even though it will entail suffering, and he provides him an analogy for doing this, a soldier who has a single-minded devotion to his responsibility. And now, having done this, I'm kind of looking forward now to next week where we talk about application. We're now in a good place to begin applying this. Now we've got a lot of constraints. We know exactly what the text means. It's going to constrain where we go with our application. So we aren't pursuing certain applications that we think are required by the text, but really aren't, in which case that application would have no divine support. God isn't necessarily sanctioning an application that's not rooted in his meaning of the scriptures. Does that part make sense? Good. All right. So uh, questions? Comments, additional insights that you would like to share? I hope that was helpful to take the time to work through that, since the purpose was just to kind of bring it all together anyway. Like I mentioned, next week we're going to look at where to go beyond the interpretation, what the next step is, which is going to be application. Last time you guys had lots of questions. No questions? When there's been an hour, oh yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Lana. Okay. 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 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So Thomas Constable, Plano Bible Chapel is his church's website. Okay. I don't know anything about those. I've heard of the name. I don't know anything about it, but yeah, there's a recommendation from Lana. Other questions or comments? How are you guys feeling? This whole process of working through all these steps, does this seem overwhelming? No? Good. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not seeing a look of being overwhelmed on your faces, which is encouraging. Good. All right, let me close some prayer. Lord, we do thank you for your word. And this is hard work. Uh, sometimes it feels harder than other times. And yet, Lord, we, we just are so overwhelmed that you would not only be out there with demands on us, but seek to draw near and to communicate to us. Uh, why would we not do the work of trying to understand what you meant by what you said? Uh, so I, I do thank you, Lord, for these dear brothers and sisters here who are taking time to learn these things. I pray that this wouldn't just be me up here uh, talking, but that they would be learning. Um, this would be helpful for them, that we would all grow to be approved workmen who rightly handle your word. And then beyond that, Lord, we don't want to be a church of people who understand your word rightly, but remain unchanged. I pray, Lord, that as we understand it rightly, we would be transformed by it as our minds are renewed, as we put off uh, the the sin that remains and to grow in righteousness, uh, I pray, Lord, that that would be evident in our lives. Our, our hermeneutical abilities would be worn on our sleeves by um, right biblical thinking, by biblically aligned affections, and by uh, consistent faithful lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.